Future Proof Extra from News Talk. Now, medical science is one of our greatest accomplishments as a species. To apply technology to recover from mortal wounds is a skill unique to humans. Of course, though, there are some exceptions, one of which is the monarch butterfly. Yapterode is an associate professor of biology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and he studies them. Welcome to the program, Yap. Why study monarch butterflies? That's a really good question. There's a lot of reasons to study them. Monarch butterflies are extremely famous for a spectacular migration they undertake every year from North America to Mexico, where hundreds of millions of monarchs can come together in small patches of forest. Um, but despite that, that's not why I started studying them. I started studying monarch butterflies because they become sick. They become sick just like humans get sick with parasites, just like animals become sick. And that allowed us to study how animals deal with their infectious diseases. These are the, the sort of almost stereotypical butterfly that people think of when they think of butterfly, right? It's black, orange, white, big That's correct. Big in, yeah. fact, in fact, most of the... Uh, advertising that you see around the world that use a butterfly, use a monarch butterfly. So very famous, well-known, colorful butterfly. How do monarch butterflies get sick and why does that interest you? Well, in this particular case, the particular case of the monarch butterfly parasites that we study, this is a parasite that is actually quite similar to some parasites that we as humans have, such as malaria parasites. And the way that butterflies become infected is actually through their mothers. So when the mothers are infected with this parasite, they carry spores on their abdomen. And then when the females lay eggs on plants, they transfer some of those parasite spores and then the caterpillars eat them up, essentially. And that is how they become infected. And the reason to study them is I started studying them really trying to understand why parasites cause virulence, that is disease, disease symptoms, death, to their hosts. Why do they do that? Why does evolution actually favor parasites doing that? And then later on, I became interested also in how monarch butterflies deal with those parasites. Can they do some interesting things to actually protect themselves against those diseases? So these um, spores that this parasite um, sort of cover the wings of a butterfly, how, how much of a big deal is that for a butterfly to, when it gets infected by this parasite and gets spores all over its wings? How much of a big deal is that? So most of the parasites are actually on the abdomen of the butterfly. Very few of them are on the wings. And that makes sense because they get transmitted from the abdomen to the, um, you know, to the plant when the, when the females lay eggs. And so it can be a pretty big deal. So when the monarchs are infected with these parasites, these parasites essentially cause damage to the tissues in that abdomen. They essentially poke little holes so that the monarchs can lose a lot of fluids and actually die of dehydration. So we find that monarchs that are heavily infected with this parasite, they may not even make it to the adult stage. They get stuck essentially in their pupil case. The ones that get out fine as an adult, they don't live as long, they don't mate as well. And what is very important for this particular species, they don't fly as well. And so for a migratory species that needs to travel thousands of kilometers every year, that can actually be a big detriment. I'm sorry, what? Not thousands of kilometers? Yes. So the monarch butterflies that originate that breed in North America, um, including in the southern parts of Canada, as well as the United States, when they fly down to Mexico for the overwintering season, they can fly up to 4,500 kilometers. What? Well, how, how, how long do they live for? 
Well, that's a very good question because most of the monarchs don't live very long. When the monarchs breed, so in the spring and the summer, when they do their thing, they get together, they mate, they lay eggs and they do their, their whole breeding, they live for about a month. But then in the autumn, when the monarchs start experiencing the fall conditions, when the day length gets shorter, the temperature goes lower, and the plants deteriorate, that is when the caterpillars essentially go into what we call reproductive diapause. And it's a physiological state in which they do not fully develop their reproductive organs. And that saves them so much energy that they can live up to eight months or so. So they can then fly all the way down to Mexico, stay there for several months, and then in the early spring start mating again and start migrating north again. How long does it take to fly to Mexico? That takes, I'd say, six weeks to two months if it's really from the most northern parts all the way down to Mexico. Doing calculations, it's about 100 kilometers a day. They can fly very well. And what they do is they're, they, they go on the, um, the higher parts of the, of, of the air, you know, where they get these air flows and they yeah. can actually essentially um, get moved on the air. They do a lot of flapping as well, but they're yeah, very they, I mean, like, it doesn't seem to me because, you know, obviously if you're gliding, that's mm -hmm. that's fine, but uh, they don't glide, and they're tiny. And a hundred kilometers a day seems like you know the energy you would imagine it would take to get you. That's extraordinary. Anyway, we're off topic because we wanted to talk about um, the, the why they get sick and how they can treat themselves. So, like humans, um, monarch butterflies have found a way to medicate their young to protect them against infection. Mm -hmm. So one of the interesting things about monarch butterflies is that they are specialists. And what that means is that their caterpillars can only eat certain plants. And monarch butterflies are specialist feeders on milkweed plants. Now there's a lot milk, of milk, milk you said, sorry, milkweed? Milkweed, yeah. Okay. It's a plant, it's called milkweed because when you rip a leaf off the plant, you see all this white latex oozing out and it looks like milk. That's why it's called milkweed. But that latex is actually very toxic and it contains toxic chemicals. And monarchs can use several different species, tens of different species of milkweed. And these milkweeds vary in the toxic chemicals that they contain. Some of them have very high concentrations, make them very, very toxic. Some of them have very low concentrations, don't make them very toxic at all. When you say toxic, and toxic to butterflies? Most butterflies, as well as all other animals. So milkweeds are toxic plants. If we eat them, we get very sick. They taste bitter. If we eat enough, we will die because the toxins actually disrupt our heart function. Wow. And But monarch butterflies are relatively resistant to these chemicals and that allows them to use them. And high enough concentrations are still bad for the monarchs, but most of the plants the monarchs can actually use because they're tolerant of these chemicals, these toxins, they don't really kill them. And so is the toxicity of the plant useful to a butterfly then? Or why would it, it, it have adapted to be able to, to use these milkweeds with toxins? Absolutely. So monarch butterflies beyond their migration are also textbook examples of warning coloration. As you earlier said, these are the butterflies that are orange and black and white. And that's a very clear warning coloration in nature that tells predators, hey, don't touch me. If you eat me, I will taste bad. And that is exactly what happens with monarchs. Hmm. So because they're resistant to these chemicals to a large extent, what they also do is they take these chemicals, these toxins, put them into their own tissues, and that makes them toxic to their predators. And then they advertise that toxicity to their predators. But our work is also suggesting that these same chemicals also work against parasites.
And, and that's what's really interesting about your research because you were looking at the effect of uh, the this toxin on these parasites. Correct. Yes. So when we started the work on these these monarchs and their parasites, one of the things that we do in our lab experiments is to grow all these plants in our greenhouse so we can do very controlled experiments. And I remember just one day I decided, you know, let's just look at different milkweeds and see how that affects the parasites, knowing that these milkweed species vary in these chemicals, knowing that these toxins are responsible for protection against predators. It was a very logical question for me to ask, can they also work against parasites? So we very simply started growing different plants of milkweeds in the greenhouse, feed them to monarch butterflies, and have the monarchs either infected or uninfected with the parasites, these protozoan parasites that we study. And then we found that there was a very big effect. So plants that have higher concentrations of these toxins actually reduce parasite infection and alleviate the disease symptoms of the monarch butterflies. All right, so it's a medicine. It is a medicine, exactly. So how do the young of the monarch butterflies benefit? So what happens is that the caterpillars eat up the parasite spores that were deposited by their mothers onto the eggs and onto the milkweeds when these females lay their eggs on those plants. And if those caterpillars at the same time ingest a plant or a leaf of that plant that has high concentrations of these toxins, they somehow become less infected. And currently we don't know yet if it's a direct effect of the toxins or whether the toxins do something else to the monarch that makes them more resistant. I think it is actually probably a direct effect of the toxins. Um, current experiments are, are looking at that. So what happens is that when these, these females lay their eggs on plants that are more toxic, it reduces parasite infection in their offspring. So, so you actually find that monarchs sort of seek out more toxic milkweed plants to lay their eggs on so that their young will be less infected by parasites. Exactly. So that was the next experiments that we wanted to do when we first found that these milkweeds have very strong effects on alleviating the disease symptoms in these monarch butterflies. To me, it was a logical question to ask, can monarchs actually benefit from this? Can they actively, as you say, seek out these plants when they are diseased with this parasite? So we followed up with relatively straightforward experiments where we set up flight tents in our greenhouse. And then what we did, we added a medicinal plant and a non-medicinal plant, add a monarch butterfly to the cage, and then after a few hours, count the number of eggs that the females laid on those two different plants. And what we found is that the infected monarchs had a strong preference to lay their eggs on the more medicinal plant than uninfected monarchs. Right, so they're sort of choosing the plant that it will have a better effect on the parasites for their children. Can I ask That's you... Right. Um, how do you, when you say you introduce, is it, when you do these tests, is it just one butterfly you stick in there? Yes, because we want to make sure that we look at just one butterfly making the decisions. If you put a lot of butterflies in there, you just got to get an average picture, right? right? And you could always have some weird butterfly that lays tons of eggs, um, some butterflies that lay no eggs. So yeah, it has to be one butterfly. And then you can really look at the individual. And when we do that repeatedly, we find that on average, the infected monarchs have a strong preference for the medicinal plant and the uninfected monarchs do not. So uh, monitoring an individual, that makes sense to me. But um, if you're talking about large populations of butterflies, is it, I mean, is it possible to track them individually to, to get an overall picture that's accurate? I mean, how, how do you tell one butterfly from another? 
So in the lab, that's very easy, right? So when we do these experiments in the lab, we know all our individual butterflies, they all have their unique numbers and they have their own identities. Ah, they don't have names? We don't give them names. We try to yeah, refer oh, to man. them as numbers, yes. That's cold, yep. Yeah, well, actually, we once did one experiment where we gave all the caterpillar names. Um, and, and the thing is, when we do experiments, we start with caterpillars. You cannot tell whether a caterpillar is a, is a boy or a girl. So we, we had 240 caterpillars in that experiment. We had to come up with 240 unisex names. That was fun. Ah, I can see why, why that, that in, in terms of expedience, um, it, it's probably best to give them numbers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, your grant review. We spend 40,000 hours coming up with unisex names and 3,000 right. hours ex actually doing the practice, uh, the well, experiment. Yeah, the internet helps greatly with these things. <laughs> All right, well, look, um, really interesting speaking with you. Uh, and it's pretty cool that monarch butterflies can sort of medicate. I, I, just before we finish up, is that the only sort of example of of uh, an animal medicating not itself in that we know of? So certainly not. So we are realizing now that there is a lot of different animals that can do all sorts of medication. And so when you think about the history of animal self-medication, people used to really look at primates, such as chimpanzees and bonobos and gorillas. And that is really where most of the findings were done several decades ago. And I think the reason for that is that people were looking at animals that are very similar to us, yeah. that can learn from their mistakes, learn from their associations. And so that is really where a lot of the uh, initial discoveries were made. And I think once people started realizing that, hey, it doesn't have to be animals with these big brains, with these learning capacities, that, you know, you can find it in other species too. And I think that was one of the, the major things that we found is that you have this butterfly that cannot learn from their experiences. They cannot see what happened, you know, after they changed their behavior, yet they're doing this really intriguing behavior. And you see it in other species too. So people have now looked at honeybees, people have looked at ants. And in those examples too, you see essentially medication happening, not by the individual to cure itself, but to cure nest mates in those cases. So I think the more we're going to look, the more we're going to find. Uh, in, just in terms of sort of usefulness for humans, is it possible that if we looked at a, a wide range of species and tried to analyze why they behaved in a certain way that more of this sort of information might fall into our lap? Because, you know, when you think of a, a monarch butterfly, you don't imagine it being very intelligent, but this this is a type of intelligence that is obviously through adaptive selection. Is it possible that we might find other um, techniques, other chemicals, uh, other, you know, remedies for toxins by looking at why animals choose to breed where they do or die or feed where they do? I think that is absolutely true. And it's, it's really exciting to me when you look at how people discover drugs, right? But in Western society, we have lost some of the ways that that other people used to find drugs. I mean, you look at indigenous cultures, people, you know, have all that that medicine history. They understand their communities much better. They they use all sorts of plant products to cure diseases. When you look at other indigenous cultures, for example, in Africa, you see that traditional medicine men often looked at animals to get inspiration. And in that way, people have looked at porcupines to find a treatment against bloody diarrhea. They have looked at elephants to get a treatment for stomach upset. 
And again, you know, what they have done is really looking at these animals that can learn that have these big brains. I think what we're doing now is looking beyond that and looking at this wide variety of animals that can use medication. And the important thing is that a lot of the parasites that they are dealing with, whether it's bacteria or viruses, protozoans, very similar counterparts occur in humans. So I think by looking at all these animals that have evolved with their parasites for tens or hundreds of millions of years, that we can actually find potential new cures against our own diseases. Yep, Darude, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much. 